And it says this. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrians shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young man shall be put to forced labour. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic. Declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who, will, who see will not be closed, and the eyes of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honourable. For the fool sparks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity. To practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil, his plans wicked schemes, to ruin the poor with lying words even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Rise up, you women who are at ease, hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder your complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease, shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare, and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people, growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. 
until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness shall abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. Are you destroyer? who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm ever morning, every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. And your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. And he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste, the travellers cease. Covenants are broken, cities are despised. There's no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you, and the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in fire. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has ceased, seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hand lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell in the heights of his place of defence will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him, his water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of your appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, 
the Lord is our King. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey and no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the ear, earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountain shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulphur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up for ever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it for ever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. <coughs> its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the horns of jackals, an abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays, and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has apportioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation they shall dwell in it. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God, 
he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall there be, nor shall there any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. <coughs> well, in a moment we're going to have a look at a bit of that passage, but before we do, let me just mention a couple of things. The first thing to say is as soon as we finish our sermon, we open things up for questions. We normally have time for maybe two or three. So I just want you to know the questions will be coming so you can think of what questions you might have. Another thing to mention is our sermon outline is in your service sheet. Um, If that's of use, you can use that. If not, don't worry. And other than that, let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this remarkable message from Isaiah. And we reflect on this now. Might we understand what it means and see the implications for both the people back then and the implications for us as we live in this later phase of redemptive history. Amen. Well, if you've been with us on our journey in Isaiah so far, you will know that Judah made an alliance with Assyria. But this alliance was a serious mistake. Judah had hoped that Assyria would help them defeat Israel and Syria. And Assyria did precisely what Judah had hoped. They destroyed Israel and then destroyed Syria. The problem was, though, they didn't stop there. Once they destroyed Israel and Syria... They then headed for Judah. The very place where Judah had put their hope ended up being their undoing. But what else could Judah have done? Well, now Assyria have turned against them. Judah are looking for a new alliance, somewhere new to put their trust. And it looks like Egypt will be their first choice. But throughout all of this, the prophet Isaiah has been relentless. There is another option, a vastly superior one. There is one that does deserve their trust. There's one that will not turn against them. And one who cannot be defeated. But no one seems to want to hear what Isaiah has to say. Yet that doesn't stop Isaiah with his persistent message. 
In fact, his message anticipates that genuine prophets will, be not, will not be listened to. We see that back in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 7. Here it explains how most of the prophets in Israel are drunks and the priests along with them. It goes without saying that priests and prophets who spend all day drunk are not able to fulfill their duties. What they need is someone to come and correct them. But in verses 9 to 10 of chapter 28, we see that when a genuine prophet does come to present them with correction through God's word, their only response is to mock them. What we find is that those that most need correction are those that are least likely to accept it. But it isn't just that they mock the prophets. Remember, the prophets speak God's word. So ultimately, it is God that they mock. Now, that that they won't listen to God doesn't mean that God loses his voice. If they will not listen to the gentle words of his prophets, well, have a look at what happens in verse 11 of chapter 28. For by people of strange lips... And with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. <clears throat> they have had the chance. But that chance has now gone. They could have listened to the prophets, but they resisted. And so now God will raise up Assyria. They will come. And they will bring God's message. But it won't be a gentle message. It will be a message brought through punishment and judgment. When the people are punished, what Isaiah has said would happen will come true. And having not listened to Isaiah's words, the action of Assyria... And what the people will need to endure will compel them to once again turn to their God for salvation. One way or another, God's word will be heard. Now Isaiah turns his attention to Judah. You see it in chapter 28 verse 14. And the leaders of Jerusalem are no different to those of Israel. They too scoff at God's word. And verse 15 describes how the leaders of Jerusalem have made a covenant with death. This could well refer to the alliance that they've made with Egypt. The people have put their hope for salvation in Egypt. They believe in doing this, they've chosen life. But Isaiah cuts through their alliance. What they've really done is chosen death. And they've done all this when life was available. But God will not allow them to be completely destroyed. Their rock is Egypt. But it's a rock that will crumble. 
But God has placed his cornerstone in Jerusalem. It's a rock that he describes as being sure. It's a rock that is tested. And it simply requires all that would be saved to put their trust in it. But before that takes place, God will prove their foolhardiness of their covenant. He will send Assyria. And when Assyria comes, it will overwhelm the city of Jerusalem. And the covenant with death or Egypt will be destroyed. So do you see what's happening here? God, the defender of Judah, will raise up an army to punish them for the rebellion. Only once they've been destroyed will they then be ready to return and to put their trust in the only one who can truly defend them. In all this, the people lack the knowledge and confidence that God can save them. They think their best option is to make an alliance with Egypt and not to make an alliance with the one who redeemed them from Egypt. And so if the question is, can God save? Then Assyria is part of the answer to that. And so while Isaiah 29 appears to all be about a siege against Jerusalem, and it's about the judgment of God's people, that's not where the message ends. The purpose of this message is not to end with judgment. Rather, this message will end with salvation. God will save his people because God is able to save. If God's going to save his people, there must be someone for him to save his people from. But who will God save his people from? Is there a worthy opponent to be found? Well, of course, the answer in one sense to that question is no. There is no one who compares to God. Yet the people are scared. They're so scared they put their confidence in Egypt. The devastation that they'll experience at the hands of the Assyrians will be real. Of which all of this could have been avoided had they remembered the God who defends them. So God raises up Assyria in order to remind his people what the God who they serve is able to do. Assyria will be God's foil. Now God has someone who he can demonstrate to his people that he has the power to save. While at the same time he'll be able to expose the frailty of Egypt and how serious a mistake it is to trust in Egypt over the Creator. Now Isaiah 34 and 35 bring to an end this section of Isaiah which began all the way back in chapter 13 and has retraced the same argument of how it's a mistake to make an alliance with any nation. Judah had no need to make an alliance with any nation since the God who created everything is theirs to trust in. However, 
Isaiah 34 sees Edom under God's judgment. And the land of Edom is turned into a desert. It's been suggested that Edom here represents all the nations. And the land that's turned into a desert represents the world. And the lesson is this. When Judah puts her confidence in a nation, that which is inhabitable becomes uninhabitable. The land becomes a desert. And so by the end of chapter 34, the land of Edom has lost all its plants. It's scorched and it's filled with animals that are unclean. Whereas when we get to chapter 35, the picture is a complete contrast. This chapter begins with an uninhabitable land, the wilderness. Yet from the dry land, a garden grows. Now it isn't until we get to verse 4 of chapter 35 that it's revealed who brings the garden to life. It's God. God brings his judgment upon those that would strike his people. And so God brings his salvation. It's a salvation that was never withheld, but was rejected. As the people put their trust in nations that belonged to God anyway, and were under God's judgment. All when they could have trusted in God. Verse 5 describes what it would be like in the garden. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Now while this canon does refer to physical healing, given the context it's just as natural to include the spiritual interpretation. Isaiah has spoken his message to the people, and they've not seen the truth or heard God's word. But now their eyes are opened and their ears are unstopped. They will hear and understand the word of God. We also see how the garden will be a place that people will flock to. If we compare it back with Isaiah 34 verse 10, where it says, night and day it shall, be, it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall, be, shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. There's no means of travel to the wilderness of Edom. The land not only is a desert, not only is it inhabitable, but there's no access to it. Whereas in 35.8, there is a highway. God unites his people. He gathers his people together, all that would put their trust in him. And back in chapter 6, when we saw Isaiah described himself as unclean, living among uh, people who were unclean, we saw how God dealt with his uncleanness. And here we see that Isaiah 
what he's already experienced will be available to others as well. Those who walk in the way will be made clean. And to walk on the way that's called the way of holiness, God will have to make you holy. The commentator describes the language of the garden as too exalted. It's a language that isn't unfamiliar within the Bible. We regularly come apart, uh, across parts of the Old Testament that uses extreme language. And this language describes a world that is wholly exaggerated. It's a world that to our ears may seem unrealistic and completely counter to our experience. It's a language that's too vivid to describe the return from exile, which frankly, when it takes place, comes as a disappointment when weighed against these remarkable images. But then when Jesus begins his ministry, what he achieves is exceptional. His ministry is wholly exaggerated. We could describe his ministry as being too exalted. All to the extent that when people reflect back upon it, it's dismissed precisely because it is unbelievable. When God demonstrates he is the only one to be trusted, when God reveals he is the salvation of the world, he does so in a way that's so bright, many of the people who see it are blinded. It's so loud, it's too much for people's ears to hear. But there are some who see and there are some who hear. It's only those that God gives his spirit to that are able to correctly understand the vividness of what they see and what they hear. Jesus brings to the people a picture of the new heavens and new earth where the language that appears too exalted on this fallen earth becomes an accurate representation of what it will be like to dwell with the creator in eternity forevermore and so it's in our interest to make our alliance with God Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these vivid pictures that we've been reflecting upon in the book of Isaiah. And as we think of these things, we thank you how we see them again when Jesus walks the earth and how he fulfills what we see in Isaiah as he brings a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth. As we live in this phase of redemptive history where Jesus has come, died, rose again, and ascended to your side, might we continue to reflect on the vividness that he demonstrated as we anticipate and look forward to living in a time 
that in this fallen earth all appears too exalted. But we pray, Lord, that we can look forward to it nonetheless. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the start of the sermon that there'd be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of what we've been thinking about this morning. That time has now arrived, so any questions or comments? Oh yes, um, so let me just repeat that for the recording. So chapter 5, sorry, chapter 35, verse 8, it says at the end of verse 8, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Now, and the question is, what does that mean? Well, interestingly, if you, I think the footnote might help us here. So it says there, if they are fools, they shall not wander in it. So we've got two options. So if you see right at the start, uh, uh, well, let me, let me read the first. It says, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. Then it says, the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Now, the way it's been presented in the main text, it suggests the fools are included. But in the footnote, it suggests that the fools are paralleled with the unclean. So the unclean shall not pass over it. And if they are fools, they shall not wander in it. Now the commentator preferred the version that's in the footnote, suggesting that the unclean won't be allowed in the land and the fools won't be allowed in the land. Um, so I think that, and we've, we've said before, they have, the Bible uses things like chiasms and parallels, so it feels like it fits better to have the unclean shall not pass over it, the fools shall not wander in it. And then in the centre of that, it shall belong to those who walk in the way. And throughout the, and it, again, it feels consistent with the Old Testament, particularly the books of the wisdom. The fool is obviously put aside um, and is, you know, denounced for its, his foolishness. I guess alternatively, we might say 
even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Well, I guess you might want to go down the line of, because of the guidance of the Spirit, they will not go astray because they will be able to remain in there. But then you would no longer presumably describe them as fools. Uh, they would be, they'd have the wisdom. So I think, yeah, that's probably some ideas around that. Time for another one. Victor. Okay, so it's just who who are the people in this context? Oh, okay, yeah, sorry. Okay, yeah, so let me just, um, let me read 13 to 15, and we'll have a look at who it is. So it says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth, and honour me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and with the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Are you, are you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us? Let me just go on a bit. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made shall say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. So what's going on here is God's talking directly to his people. And when he says to them, you honour me with your lips, but your heart is far from me, it's the idea that they are, um, you know, they say the words, but they don't really trust in him. Um, and then when they say, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us. They think they're getting away with it. So they just carry on doing the wrong thing because they don't believe God sees them. And so then when we get to verse 15, we see that on a larger scale. And it's quite a remarkable picture here. So it's comparing the potter who makes the clay. So he makes a pot out of the clay. And the clay turns around to the potter and says, you did not make me. Um, and then the clay says to the potter, you don't know how, you, you don't know anything about anything. Which is kind of what we were referring to in the prayer earlier on. If you think about it, this is obviously talking about God who creates the world. He creates the world, he gives us life, he provides us everything we need. You know, the breath that you're inhaling now, you're only inhaling it because it's been provided by God. The knowledge that we have is all derivative of his. He knew it first. Our knowledge is his first. And yet, I mean, this is what we see now. People say, God, you do not exist. You're irrelevant. 
you have nothing to say. Well, how can we say those words but by the voice that God has given us? How can they be communicated but by the breath that passes across along our vocal cords? How can we shake our fists at him while he's sustaining us? So it's, it's that sort of idea, um, the sort of nonsensical nature of us shaking us, our fist against God. We've had quite a long morning, um, so should we leave it there? Unless anyone, yeah, should we leave it, let's leave it there. We're going to have a further reflection after we sing our next song, which is Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean. <laughs>